Hello, may I welcome you to episode 8 of Moving Matters. I am your host, Colin Wynn. I hope Moving Matters will give you an insight to others working, or worked in the case of some of my future guests, in this wonderful industry, as I delve into their past, their present, and their future. You will find a new episode of Moving Matters on the second and fourth Thursday of each month. It was a great opportunity for me to record this episode with my guest, a guest that oversees a company that was formed back in 1871, and today has 19 branches nationwide, 210 vehicles, and 460 staff. My guest this episode is Ian Palmer. Chief Executive Officer of White & Co PLC. Enjoy. Good morning, Ian. Welcome to Moving Matters. How are you today? Thanks very much, Colin. Great. Thank you. Can you tell everyone a little about yourself and the length of time in this industry? Yeah, uh, I've worked for White & Company officially with a contract for 43 years. I joined them in July 1977, straight from school. I grew up in Plymouth, in Devon, and my father was White & Company branch manager. And I guess like anyone else who comes into this industry, it was through really a, a case of child abuse, really. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, I sort of started washing their vans when I was about 12 or 13, o only up to the level of the sign writing, because I wasn't that tall then. <laughs> and you weren't on a cherry picker or anything like that? Oh, God, no, they wouldn't have spent money on cherry pickers. You know, <laughs> uh, a rickety old stepladder. But um, yeah, it was, uh, I mean, it was, wasn't my intention to come into the industry that way. It It just like it does for so many of us, it just happens. I'm originally, I, I would have liked to have been a geography teacher, but really I, I, I probably offended so many teachers by the time I left school that none of them were particularly happy to help me. And <laughs> I then tried to get into the Royal Navy as a navigation officer. Having passed all the entrance exams, I failed the medical because I'm a bit colorblind. And, you know, they didn't want any other Tory Canyon events sort of happening uh, whilst I was a navigation officer. And I didn't oh, want wow. to accept the lower position. Oh, fair enough. Fair enough. Absolutely. I wanted the gold braid and uh, a couple of years at Dartmouth. So into the removal industry you came? Yeah. Um, my, my father had always been quite a disciplinarian. I, I had got a secure myself a job to join HMRC then, but I had to wait until my 17th birthday before I could join them. And down in Plymouth, they had two large high performance sort of cutters, which went out into the Western approaches to intercept ships that were coming up through the approaches. And that was another way into a maritime job. But during the year I, or eight months I had to wait, I started working on the vans, traveling all over the place. And uh, my father, who had been quite a disciplinarian all his life, 
asked me who he was a while. I wasn't particularly happy about things. And I said, I didn't really want to, didn't really know what I wanted to do. And he went from being very strict to very cool and said, do you want to work on the vans for a couple of years? And that was it. So that was at a White & Co branch? Yeah, that was in Plymouth. And how long was he manager of that branch? He had been manager since the early 70s, I guess. So do you class yourself then as a second generation removal man? Yeah, I'm second generation. And my eldest son, Adam, who's just coming up for 30, is third generation. So the removal blood runs in the family. Yeah, I mean, for Adam, it was, all, it was even worse, really. I mean, from a very young age, all he wanted to do was to do with trucks, everything. He would sit on the, the doormat, you know, on a Saturday morning, waiting for me to take him to work. And I, I guess he was probably about four or five at the time. So you started off at White's Cleaning Vehicles. Yeah. And it progressed to what next? Portering, driving? Portering. Uh, I was, well, I still am a really good packer. Uh, not too many of the men liked doing the packing, and I, and I was quick and pretty efficient at it. And then did you progress into HGV and, and, no, and all that? No, I, I never did my HGV, oh. uh, which is possibly a little bit of a regret. But I, I used to drive the smaller vehicles, the seven and a half tonners. I mean, I can drive HGV trucks, but I just haven't got a license for it. And from that, I progressed into uh, estimating, really. My father was looking for a new estimator. I, I just said I could do that job. And the managing director of White's at the time, a guy called Jeff Halliwell, sort of authorised it, really. So I went into their uh, management, trainee management uh, programme. What, so White & Co had a training management program? Yeah. So you went through that. Did you do any of the BAR training? Yeah, I did my CRE, which is the Certificate and Removal Estimating. I was awarded the Michael Gerson Medal, which Excellent. is Best Practical Surveyor. I then did my Ordinary Certificate and Removals Management, and then my Higher Certificate and Removals Management, which gained me my International CPC. So how long did you remain a surveyor? Well, I left Plymouth when I was 20. I was offered a job uh, in our branch in Forres in Morrisshire in the north of Scotland. That's a long way away from Plymouth. Well, I mean, I asked to be moved, really, because I wanted to progress. And I thought they'd give me Bournemouth so I could nip home with my washing and things at weekends. <laughs> uh, they, they offered me uh, Forres or Harrogate. And all I knew about Harrogate was tea shops. And at the time, I was pretty much into outward bound sort of activities. And I didn't think there would be a better place to do it than Scotland. So I went up there when I was 20. I was an estimator, but I was also made assistant manager. I was up there a, a couple of years and eventually got married up there when I was about 23. And the year following that, unfortunately, my father died at a very young age. He was only 46. And I was asked if I wanted to move back and manage Plymouth, which I felt was the best thing to do. Right. So I became a manager when I was 25. That's a young age to become a manager. 
yeah, Plymouth was quite a tame branch, though, to be a manager at. So you went into the management side of it. How long did you stay manager of that branch? Till 1980, late 1988, I was asked if I'd like to go back to Forres. So my wife and I up sticks and left Devon and went back to Forres. So I was then managing a much larger branch. We were running uh, about 16 vehicles at the time. So that, that was great fun. I really enjoyed managing Forres. You, you were far enough away from head office that they couldn't get hold of you very easily. Um, <laughs> did they have a need to then? I'm sure they did. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm sure they, they probably did. So, But I really enjoyed working in Scotland. And it was just great fun. And I was working with some real characters up there and some drivers who just got on with things, you know, there, there wasn't a lot of whinging. We were in such a remote location, you know, and it was a small town that I worked in. Everybody knew each other. Everybody knew each other's kids. It, it, it was hard work, but easy work. And what prompted you to move back down south? Well, while I was up in Forres, after a number of years, uh, I was made a director of the company. Um, uh, when I was about 35, I think. And we just opened up a branch in uh, North London. So in, I think it was either 1995 or 1996, I was asked to go and run that branch, which had been opened from cold. And so we then toddled off down to live in Hertfordshire in Ware. And I was running our branch there in Waltham Cross, uh, right, right at Junction 25 of the M25. Uh, I ran that through until 2003, which, you know, that, that was a difficult branch to run. It, it wasn't easy there. Uh, I wouldn't say I enjoyed working and living in London. I enjoyed Hertfordshire. That was a very nice place. And by then we had two sons, two young sons as well. So, um, why so hard in, in, in London? Is that because it was like a, a brand new depot just starting out? Well, that wasn't a problem, but um, the, the different characters, the attitude of staff uh, wasn't what we, I was used to in the, the Northern Highlands. You know, it, it was a, an uphill battle trying to get staff there. And, and I think generally still is. And, and staff retention was difficult. You know, they would move ever, anywhere for 25p an hour extra. <laughs> but again, I, I, I mean, I was blessed with a core staff there who are, some of them are still there. And, and they're, they were really good. Uh, I had no knowledge of London whatsoever. Uh, so I, I did rely on people pretty heavily. You know, when you program something in Enfield in the morning and put them down in Kingston Pond Thames in the afternoon, I really had no concept of where places were. Hold on, you wanted to be a geography teacher at the start yeah, of this. <laughs> well picked up. <laughs> so what was after London? Uh, well, in 2003, well, whilst I was at London for about six months, I was also uh, managing our branches in Jersey and Guernsey. Right. Which were, I think, struggling at the time. I think that's fair to say. So I would do one week in each 
I was pretty blessed with a very strong uh, operations manager and he was able to sort of focus on London. So I helped out in Jersey and Guernsey. And then in 2003, uh, I was asked if I'd like to move to head office in Southampton. It was a bit of a non-specific role, really. Yeah, it was pretty non-specific. I was doing a fair amount of international work by then. And, and I thought uh, that that's what I would be doing, which suited me as well. But over a period of about five months, I was doing more and more sort of understudying to the then chief executive, Nick McClinton. And then in April of 2003, I was asked to become chief executive. So you've done this role now for a number of years. Yeah. And you are currently based where exactly? Botley in Southampton. In Botley. Based by Southampton. So let's talk about whites a little bit. History. I see it started in 1871. Yep. Next year will be our 150th anniversary of being in business. And do you have any celebratory plans? If COVID doesn't well, ruin them. We, we've got plans. Whether they'll materialise or not is uh, uh, another matter. And, you know, uh, it is important for the company to celebrate that. But it's more important that we concentrate on uh, keeping the business running at the moment. We, we plan to do something at each branch and we providing the BAR conference goes ahead in May in Jersey, then we'll hold a celebration there. So a bit of history on, on White & Co. Well, uh, it was founded by A.W. White in Portsmouth in 1871. It was, we worked a lot with the Navy through uh, a laundry company that led us to having uh, staff, cartage facilities in the dockyard, and that soon morphed into transportation and then removals. And we grew alongside the Great Western Railway. In fact, uh, up until I would have thought the early 50s, our vehicle livery was almost identical to the Great Western Railway. Really? Yeah, our, our old, what, the, our old um, tunnel van, which we display at uh, county shows throughout the summer, is still in the GWR livery. Maybe, maybe for the centenary, there should be a, a wagon in those colours. Maybe. <laughs> it's... Uh, <laughs> They weren't really in particularly inspiring colours. Uh, there's a lot of brown going on. Oh, don't say that. You'll upset Purdy's. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I'm, over, I'm over that now. <laughs> so how many branches do Whites have? Well, with our subsidiaries, we've got 19 at the moment. Um, and how many trucks are involved in those 19 branches and staff-wise that you've got a staff got count? 210 vehicles and 460 staff. How do you manage all of that? Well, I think I manage <laughs> it quite well, actually. But Yeah, but I, how? How? Well, we, we've got a good board of directors who take away a lot of the pressure. Um, we've got dedicated management at each branch. We've always been well-trained. 
and we've got a, a good central core uh, administrative team who take away a lot of the, the HR issues and payroll. But the, the managers themselves keep a, a lot from me, if you like. They're, um, we've got a good bunch. I think most of our staff have got quite a, our management team have got uh, quite a bit of longevity of service. We're not like premiership clubs hiring and firing on one year's result. And do you still do your own training programs? We mostly rely on the BAR's training programs and the Road Haulage Association, but mostly the BAR. We are members of Omni and Feedy, and Feedy in particular do some fabulous training courses on the international work, and, and we make good use of them uh, in sort of October, November of each year. What is the relationship of the company's purchase in recent years to Weiss? Do they run as their own company or do they become a Whites branch? We run them completely as their own companies. They've got separate P&Ls from White and & Company. And I mean, they're all owned by our parent company, which is Whitport Limited. We, in my view, we made a mistake in about 2005 when we acquired a company and we sort of... It, forced our own brand upon that company and that's never quite worked uh, we had dual branding uh, when we bought london conlon in bedford and um, i thought we made a mistake there we we paid a lot for the the goodwill and we should have retained that goodwill so everyone since has uh, run its run its own PL and and shared in common common savings you know with uh, backroom office work uh, material purchasing, fuel, vehicle purchasing. Yeah, yeah. So you mentioned Feedy and Omni, which then obviously means you do overseas, you do commercial, you do domestic. What sort of breakdown of turnover are those as a percentage? Uh, our international and European business accounts for about 45% of our work. An awful lot. Yeah. And the, the, the rest really is, by and large, domestic. We do do some commercial, but it's by accident rather than design. We don't particularly promote ourselves in the commercial field. We're, with so many of our trucks being on the continent for most of the time, Colin, it, it's difficult to then get guys to be enthusiastic about doing uh, office and commercial work at the weekends. You know, they right. need to come home for a decent break. Yeah. So what challenges have you had to overcome? You can do this as a branch manager or in your earlier years and now as your chief executive years. I think in my earlier years, there was the boss's son issues that inevitably come up. But uh, I think I've worked my way through them. I think most people always viewed me as a very hard working person. I was always you know, easy to go along. I was very flexible uh, with what I did. Uh, so that was pretty much easily overcome. Challenges uh, professionally beyond that. I'm very impatient and I've had to learn to sort of curb that a little. <laughs> you know, uh, as a junior manager, uh, and I really don't advocate this, you know, the red mist did come down a lot. 
So I think over uh, over the years, I, I've uh, learned to see other people's points of view, even if they're wrong. <laughs> More often than not, they're wrong, eh? <laughs> well, I always take the view that if I'm going to take the fall for it, then it probably is going to be my view. Absolutely. I have to agree with that one. And if you could change anything from the past, what would it be? I, really, I, I, I don't dwell much in the past, Colin. There, there's one company I regret us not, not purchasing. So um, I think that, that, that's my only regret. A little bit more effort on our part, and I'm sure we would have secured it. Well, that's not such a bad regret, no, is no, it? No, it's not too bad. That's, that's more of a, just a, a missed opportunity, Most, I would have yeah. thought. So what is your high point of being in the industry? Well, personally, when I was made CEO, I was over the moon. I, I, I never thought I would have achieved that. I was pretty pleased when I was a branch manager, but when I was made CEO, that was a personal high point. But when I became uh, president of the BAR, that was, uh, that was a pretty special occasion for me. But being made the CEO must be right up there. I mean, to start off as, as you said at the start of the podcast, cleaning the vehicles and then doing obviously portering, packing, estimating. You, you've literally gone and done, and as you said, you can drive the HGV vehicles, but you don't have the license, but you've pretty much gone and done everything there is in the removal industry to get where you are today. Yeah, I, I always think you, you, you shouldn't ask someone to do something that you're not prepared to do yourself and commit to. Correct. A few years ago at work, one of the young lads in the yard was being rather lippy. And, and I said to him, I'd give up my lunchtime if he gave up his lunchtime and see if he could pack a car in a china and glass the quickest. And I, I remember this lad, go, he was up for it, and the foreman put his hand on his shoulder. He said, just sit down. <laughs> I thought, oh, that's still pretty good fun. But... <laughs> What one thing would you change within the moving industry? Um, I think the conveyancing situation has always been a major frustration. If that could be changed and how removal companies are looked at, that would be something which, which make everyone's lives so much easier. I would also like to change the way removal companies are viewed in general you know we're pretty much at the bottom of the food chain and 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 that in a way prevents us from paying our really hard-working staff enough money because they they're, they're worth more but there just isn't enough money in the industry to, to pay them that much more so uh th those are the two things that i would really, really like to change and, and they are connected. It's, it's how the way the mover is viewed. And how can we go and about changing both of those, especially the last well, I, one? I, I think we, we've really got to maintain our professionalism. During the COVID pandemic, particularly in the, the early stages of it, I think the BAR in particular really led the conversation on how we should all behave, not just in our industry, but in associated industries, such as, you know, convincing solicitors, estate agents, we led that discussion. I would like to see some of that respect 
stick to us. Is it also a case that it's a very easy industry to get into? You haven't really actually got to go out and buy a van these days. I mean, I could go down to my local van hire company and I can hire a van for 70 no, That's absolutely true, Colin. It, it's really much unregulated. Yeah, very much so. Uh, very much unregulated. And, you know, there, there was a, a fashion for ex-servicemen starting up their own companies and suddenly they were an international remover taking trucks down to Spain. Anyone with redundancy can acquire a, a, a cheap three and a half tonner. And although they've got their place, the, the new sort of genre of these knee-high type vehicles, that's sort of aiding things in that direction again. You know, people can do removals very easily, very cheaply, with, without actually having to demonstrate that they are professional. Yeah, I mean, I'm pretty sure that even my local van hire will do, you know, a transit van at £70 a day. I mean, you know, to go out and hire that, pull a friend in or two, do a, a quick so-called removal, there's some, there's some money to be made there. There is for a certain element of the population. Once you start to build up a reasonable quantity of valuable possessions, then I think, place is still there for the professional full service mover i would agree with you but how do we get these people that have got these possessions to pay more for their removal than they do for their 45 inch tv that's hanging on their wall well i i think and i say this all ourselves team that we've got to be proud of our price we, yep. we, we actually have to sell our services you know people might be attracted to us the brand but they buy from the individual and, and our surveyors have got to be less focused on establishing accurate volume and concentrating on the sales process. And probably making the customer aware of the removal process. It's not just a case of moving your furniture into a back of a truck and transporting it down the road. It's all carefully stacked inside that truck so that nothing yeah. is going to move. And they're not just picking up a table and putting it on the back of a truck. They're putting things on top of the table. Once it's covered, they're putting things under the table. If they've got any freestanding wardrobes, they're putting things inside the wardrobes. Customers don't know that. Customers still to this day don't know that if their goods are going into storage, a truck's going to turn up with wooden boxes on it. No, no, that is a struggle. And yet you know, we have literally shoals of excellent quality control records come across my desk every week. And after the event, so many customers remark about how professional we were and how they made the right choice. But getting them to understand that pre-service is difficult. Yeah. So you mentioned about the pandemic. How has White & Co dealt with the pandemic, being nationwide, multi-branch? The short answer is I think we've, we've dealt with it really well. Initially, it, it seemed like a cliff we were going to drop off. BAR stepped up their game and uh, issued um, well-considered protocols, which we were able to adopt and uh, adapt our business life to. We've tried always, right throughout the pandemic, to think of our colleagues, uh, especially those who are going out and are customer-facing. We've provided them with every conceivable 
piece of PPE. We have amended our practices. We've reduced the number of people that can be in our vehicle cabs. We've sent out customer information packs saying how we'll behave at the time of the survey, how we expect the customer to behave as well. And then we've repeated that when we come to undertake removals. Uh, we, we've reduced the amount of time that we actually spend in the customer's house by doing a lot of pre-planning. And um, we've reduced the number of physical surveys by doing virtual surveys. I mean, I was only reviewing this this morning and uh, this week, 62% of our surveys will be via video. And, and, and that's been a challenge, getting that all started. We work with our colleagues to find out who could work from home sensibly and safely. And, and, and that opened up a, a new aspect, quite a fun aspect to the business. Uh, people bought into that quite well. And you mentioned earlier that you're a member or a founder member of Feedy and Omni. Yeah. Considering your business is 45% overseas, how do they, those organizations, those groups, how, how do they fit in with your company? Well, we were founder members of each. Feedy, of course, provides exceptional training, which we're very pleased, very proud to use. It also like Omni, provides a, a standard of international service that we can expect from Fidi and Omni members throughout the world. You, you know, you know what you're going to get when you book with a Fidi or an Omni member. And when we're, trust, we're trusting our customers' possessions into their care to deliver our promise. But not all international movers are part of those groups. That's correct, uh, which is why we always wherever possible, place our business with a Fidi or an Omni member. Right. You just feel you're getting that cut above. And I see White & Co offer archive storage. Yeah, we do. And I have a question on archive storage because you're my first guest that does archive storage that I've been able to ask this question too. So I'm curious how archive storage has been in recent years as the digital age takes over. Well, it's funny, when you, you put the question to me a week or so ago, I, I went and did a review of our archive storage, and, and the number of physical files we're actually storing at the moment is the highest it's ever been. We've always targeted those companies, um, architects, solicitors, doctors' practices, who are aiming to store three, 400 boxes with us. And their need to retain physical records for extraordinary periods of time still exists. Equally, we have a, a lot of companies that do do destruction because they're going on to digitalization. Well, that just you know, uh, gives us another opportunity to make a sale, really. We'll do the digitalization for them. And then the destruction of the physical files. But I surprised myself to see that we had more physical files in storage than we've ever had before. Because all I generally see is the destruction. So do all the branches do archive storage? Look, some do it half-heartedly. Yeah. And two in particular do it as a, a, as a core part of the business. 
but uh, when you, if, if you want archive storage and you, you've got a converted storage container, that's what most of our branches do. Yeah. Uh, but Maidman's uh, is very strong on archiving. Our London branch is strong on archiving. Our Southampton head office is probably the, the largest centre. Yeah, I remember in my days of being associated with Alton Moves Group in, in Borden that we did archive storage and we had about 140 containers worth. And in those days, we would just have like a, a row of eight containers and we'd take the backs off each container. So you open the door of the first one and you'd walk through. But you'd have to go and wear a, a, a miner's helmet because that's the only way we can get any light in there. But that's how we would do it. And we would have them stacked too high. So 140 containers, literally open the front door and just keep walking eight containers back. Yeah. I can almost hear your spurs jangling. <laughs> they don't do that anymore. They don't do that anymore. <laughs> no, no, I'm sure nobody does. So what advice would you give to a young Ian just starting out in the industry? Obviously, you have two young boys in the industry. I take it both are in the industry or only one? No, uh, Adam, my eldest son, uh, he's the manager of our Winchester branch. And my youngest son, Kieran, is... Uh, uh, an engineer for ExxonMobil. So you couldn't be more worlds apart, but both have worked on the vans. You know, all, all the way through college, they both were all, all over Europe on the trucks. So you must have given Adam an awful lot of advice as he's manager of Winchester. Yeah, uh, some. <laughs> so what would you give yourself if you were starting again? Well listen a bit more try and find a compromise to a solution in fact listen a lot more try try and find a solution where you can both both parties can come out of it gracefully i was quite ruthless early on in my career and i i, I think if i'd have listened a bit more and adopted that approach i would have achieved <laughs> better resolutions <laughs> so have you mellowed with age then ian no i've just, <laughs> just learned how to find better resolutions <laughs> so where do you see yourself and the industry in the next five years is anyone ready to step into your shoes as ceo of white and co we've always as a company always promoted from within and uh, i certainly think there's two or three contenders. But I'm not prepared to retire at the moment. I'm a, a long way off that. I certainly think I've got a lot more to give to both the business and the industry in general. I think the industry is going to make far greater use of technology, not just in software, but I think in uh, electric vehicles, perhaps hydrogen vehicles. Uh, and I think there's going to be a more focus on shared facilities, shared operations. For myself, after the end of my presidency next May, I would hope to go back onto the Overseas Group Council, which has always been my uh, main focus of interest. And as you are currently the president of the BAR, how are you finding your role as president? And has the pandemic changed anything as we find ourselves more and more in this virtual world of Zoom meeting after Zoom meeting? Well, look, it has changed. BAR has stopped doing any of the area meetings. 
at least physical area meetings. We've stopped the training until very recently in Watford and the opportunities to, to hold meetings at Watford have also disappeared. However, Zoom has come along and, and I must say in some ways it's a very practical way of getting meetings done. I, I, I think it's been very efficient and it stopped us having to eat too many curly sandwiches out of a box in Watford when we, you know, people from all over the country have had to go to Watford for uh, meetings. I think for the area meetings, I think it's been quite a revelation, particularly back in the, the early spring and midsummer when the weather was really good. Doing the area meetings in shorts and polo shirt out on the, on the garden sharing a glass of wine with 20, 30 people all through a different area was a lot of fun. And I, and I, I personally met a lot of really good people that I don't think would have come to a, a physical meeting. So do you think the BAR area meeting attendees were an increase? Oh, they, de they definitely increased. They, they dropped off a little in late summer because, of course, we're, everyone's so flat out. Yep. You know, time constraints are there. But we wouldn't normally have held those meetings in mid-late su mid summer. You know, everyone knows that, you, you know, you're too busy until the autumn months. But there were a lot of new attendees. And I think a lot of people got better in insight in into how the BAR and particularly the areas actually worked. Maybe an idea for the future is to still have our area meetings that we attend. And for those that can't, we have a Zoom session that's hosting the meeting there and then, and they can I, log on. And I think it would be uh, a really good idea to do that. But I, I wouldn't like to see the physical area meetings stop. No, I wouldn't um, either. You know, the BAR and the removal industry is incredibly sociable. Yes. And I think we all rely on having a couple of shandies at the bar and, uh, you know, bouncing ideas around with, you know, like-minded individuals. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, and I think a lot, of the, <laughs> a lot of the area meetings are held at some fantastic old pubs where, where you, you get fed really well as well. So uh, <laughs> I, I think people would be reluctant to give up on carveries and very traditional fair absolutely absolutely i don't it, it still blows my mind to this day i know i've had a rant on a previous podcast but it still blows my mind that removers do not attend these meetings it, it really does I, you just get so much from it so much from it. not just the, the meeting content itself but it's the networking before during yeah. after that the whole thing and and as as it's also been pointed out in the past yes we have competitors but this is an industry where competitors do often speak to one another and and share experiences Oh, absolutely. You know, uh, two of our competitors in particular are, are, you know, some of my closest friends. We all understand where the relationship starts and finishes, but you can all have common ground. You can all help one another. Absolutely. And I don't think you achieve that completely when doing Zoom meetings. No, you lose the one-to-one. -one. Yeah. So what do you do outside of the industry to switch off? Uh, I don't Maybe you ever, don't switch off. I don't, I, I don't ever seek to totally switch off, if I'm honest. But in my free time, 
I like riding my motorbike quickly and I enjoy going to see rock bands. So where do you go to see those? Apart from the main concert venues uh, in the UK, we uh, enjoy going to a venue called The Brook in Southampton, which is very traditional. Probably get about 400 people in there. Uh, I was going to say, I, I don't know The Brook. I know obviously the Guild Hall is there. and The Brook is like a giant converted pub with all the, the, the centre of it ripped out. Yeah, see, that to, that to me sounds a perfect venue. I like socialising as well. I like outdoor cooking. What about golf? Well, I, I have, but it's probably not as most people would recognise it. I tend to use the wrong bats. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I don't get golf. I don't understand why people want to hit a ball 200 no. yards and then put it in a little hole. I don't get I it. used to quite enjoy it when the boys were younger. We're quite close to a golf course and to come home of a, a Friday night and just go and do nine holes. I really enjoyed that, but then they got significantly better than me, and I stopped enjoying it. <laughs> Isn't that always the case? And also during the summer months, I really like going and watching cricket. Uh, I live very close next to, uh, very close to Hampshire's ground at the Rose Bowl, and I like the T Twenty stuff and the Test matches. I mean, it was really frustrating this year the Rose Bowl had many of the test matches and they were all played behind closed doors and to have that going on 500 meters from your house very frustrating i'm sure and 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 i had tickets for all of it uh it really was frustrating and i just couldn't get into watching cricket without the audiences it was i i don't know why i just couldn't buy into it yeah even while watching the football and things like that on the tv the fake crowds and so it's not the same it's not the same no but hopefully we'll get back soon. Well, finally, I like to end my podcast with a funny moving story. Do you have one or more to tell? Well, you know, a lot of people say they've got lots of funny moving stories. But the truth is, not too many of them are repeatable. One <laughs> I was thinking about happened when uh, I was about 17. And for anyone who knows the South Hams area of Devon, uh, there's two villages, Newton Ferrers and Nos Mayo, separated by the River Yelm and a creek. And we were <laughs> moving someone from very awkward access to Nos Mayo. And we had to access the new house in Nos Mayo by rowing boats. And I was helping to row the boat over and balanced across the middle of the rowing boat. We had a large sideboard and I let it slip. (laughs) Uh, There's an insurance claim. And it sank. That was... (laughs) Oh, no. Yeah, I just thought wood would float and it just went down and down. Uh, Did they ever get it back? No, no. It, I mean, the customer was initially devastated. <laughs> but, I mean, I, it was in, entirely my fault. You know, I, I was just too busy sort of looking at the scenery. It's a really picturesque place. 
<laughs> I tell you what, I've never heard of a removal being done by a, a rowing boat. Yeah, That's a first. A rowing boat. We had about two of them, uh, possibly three, quite broad rowing boats. And it was the only way to get the stuff over to this house. That is some undertaking. Yeah. That was <laughs> terrible. So that memory has stuck with you since that day. It, it has. <laughs> uh, and although I would go ballistic if any of our junior managers were to do this now, I raced my company car, a Lancia 2000. And I don't know how I came to end up with a Lancia, but I raced it at a privateer's day organized by ATS, the tire specialists. And I raced it at Knock Hill, which is just outside Dunfermline. And I came second. <laughs> It wasn't sponsored. It didn't have White & Co. along the side, did it? No, it didn't. But <laughs> I, I absolutely wrecked the tyres. And the manager of ATS felt, you know, quite sorry for me. And he put four brand new tyres on it on Monday. <laughs> but then invoiced me the cost of the tyres at one a month. So it didn't stand out. <laughs> at that point, you want all White & Co. managers to switch off at that one, you know? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, uh, but I'm not giving out Lancy as what whatever possessed my boss to go along with that at the time. I don't know. <laughs> very good, Ian. Thank you very, very much for giving up your time this morning. I truly appreciate it, and I'm sure our listeners will too. Thank you. You're very welcome, Colin. Good to speak to you. You too. I sincerely hope you enjoyed episode 8 of Moving Matters. If you did, then please tell your industry colleagues about Moving Matters, which they can listen along to on their podcast player of choice. And please, if you can, I would really appreciate you leaving a review on iTunes. Many thanks to those that have. My thanks and appreciation go to Ian Palmer for giving up his time to record this episode. Thank you again, Ian. If you would like to know more about White & Co PLC and the services they offer, then you will find links within the show notes for this episode and on our webpage, movingmatterspodcast.co.uk. And please, if you have a funny moving story that can be relayed to our listeners, do reach out to me. Don't be shy now. I want your story told. So please complete the contact form on our webpage, movingmatterspodcast.co.uk Tweet me at Moving Matters PC or email me host at movingmatterspodcast.co.uk. And as mentioned at the end of episode 6, the BAR Young Movers Group Council were to climb the highest mountains in England, Scotland, and Wales within 24 hours to raise funds for the RBA, the Removers Benevolent Association, in their National Three Peaks Challenge. Sadly, this has been postponed until 2021 and everyone involved is truly gutted. Look out for a forthcoming episode of Moving Matters, where I get to discover about each council member of the BAR Young Movers Group and discuss the views of the young blood within the moving industry. Should be a fun-filled episode. Well, that is all from me, so until next time, keep moving.